I'm Mark. I think that's already been established, but uh, uh, I have um, about three introductions before I get to my introduction, and I apologize, but um, I'm incredibly nervous. Uh, I speak, I preach and teach in English once every six years, and so um, I'm flipping out right now, but uh, I'm sure my English will come back until there will be a moment I'll turn to my wife and I'll ask for a word. And I used to think uh, my, my view of missionaries wasn't always the greatest. I thought they were kind of weird. <laughs> and, and then I became one. And they are really weird. I mean, like, they're really weird. So, and it, actually, the weirder a missionary is, I think the better he is, actually, in his country where he works. Um, just real quickly, uh, I'm from here meaning uh, I grew up in northwest Iowa, and I thought about something Saturday night. I was kind of embarrassed. Like Tim said, oh, you're from Esterville. And I took my fist and I went, mighty midgets. And then I realized, oh, you don't say that anymore. Um, I guess, I'm not sure, but we, we are the Esterville midgets. It's a long story, but pride oozes out of every pore in my body because I'm a mighty midget. So I'm sorry if that's offensive. I just... Again, I come to America very infrequently, and I'm not sure what to say anymore, but uh, so. Uh, and then when I said I'm from here, um, you go to in the basement of the dining hall, it used to be the chapel, and I was like a 13-year-old boy, and I made a decision to follow Christ in ministry, and so I'm from here. I worked at this camp for seven years. Uh, I, like Major decisions in my life were made at this place. I mean, this is holy ground to me because of what the Lord did in my life. And so, and then I went to Bible College at Faith, and so I'm from here. So I speak your language. I am an Iowan. And so just for instance, I can just hang on yourselves, but there's this state north of it. It's called Minnesota. Like if you're not from here, you call it Minnesota. But I speak the language Minnesota. So, you know, so I'll try to get into the groove of speaking Iowan again. Um, and this, the other thing is, it's a real privilege for me to be here, so this is my second introduction. Uh, what I want to do this week is I really want to challenge you, and so, and I don't want to get it in your face and be obnoxious, but I want to push you in one issue, and it is the greatest need in missions, but it's a very specific thing. I'm going to give, show you what the need is this morning, uh, but then I'm going to show you what you can do, and there's really some clear things you can do. Um, I will never be political in what I say, but politics t will touch this issue, and, and I will avoid it like the plague. I will not touch the political side of it, but there is something both tomorrow and, and on Wednesday that we'll get into and about how you can actually attack and help this greatest need in missions. So I just want you to know that. And so also, um, I'm not the missionary guy who's going to stand up here and regale you with great stories of France. You should probably come to France and visit me because uh, some really amazing things to see. Um, the Lord is at work in the country where we live and, and, and minister, um, but it's very small. It's, it's actually kind of sad because not a lot of people are coming to Christ in France, and yet people are coming to Christ in France. Um, but my, what I wanted to do this week is really confront you where you're at, where you live, and what I consider to be the greatest need in missions. And so I'm going to start with a story, and this story is about the girl in the middle of that boat right there. Her name is Kristen Kirsten Christina, I'm not 100% sure, 
She's my great-grandmother. I knew, her. I knew her. Now, why? I'm not sure. You think, oh, this guy is a really great missionary. He doesn't even know the name of his great-grandma. It changed three times because she was born in Denmark. That photo was taken in Denmark. And I remember her. Matter of fact, I'll show you why I remember her. Christine came to America. I'm not a... Oh, there we go. And uh, the young child on her lap, sitting in the beautiful white dress, is my grandfather. Can you imagine... <laughs> The pride, I mean, literally, my heart swelled with pride as I realized my grandfather wore a white dress. Guess who else wore a white dress? Dad, would you raise your hand? <laughs> my dad wore that white dress. And when I was nine months old, I looked at my parents and I said, I will never, ever wear that white dress. I'm an American man. No, I don't know. Somehow between my dad and myself, they lost the white dress. And every day I thank God. <laughs> that there is no photo like that because Tim Moore or Phil Betts would literally find that photo and that would become the backdrop for everything in the internet. So, so that's Christine. Now, I've got, I've got one more photo. And the genius staring up at the ceiling is me. And that's my great-grandmother. And I only put that for one reason because my mom's sitting right over there and mom, you know... I was a really good-looking kid. If you, like, if you, I mean, besides the looking up at the ceiling, but seriously, I only put that up because I scored huge brownie points with my mom. So I count three, two, one. We'll switch photos. That photo served no purpose other than my mom saying, "Oh, my son is so wonderful." So anyway, so back in 2013. Uh, I took my parents, well, actually, I took my wife and my three children. We drove up to Paris. I picked up my parents. We got in our car, and we drove up to uh, Denmark. We took a ferry boat, and we went to the island where my great-grandmother was born, where she lived until she, until she was 16 years old. So we got off the ferry boat, and we went on to the island of Arrow in the, in the town of Eriskobing. We took our car, and we drove to the house where my grandma lived. And the story is, is they, I think, had 12, 11, 12 children. And what I understand is as each child reached 16, they were given a birthday present of a boat ticket to America. You can now leave. There are too many of you in this house. And we knocked on the door, and there was this Danish couple who spoke beautiful English, frankly, better than I speak. And they let us come in the house, and we were able to film it. And it was just an amazing thing to go back and see where my great-grandmother grew up, the woman that I remember, I remember distinctly her accent, which is kind of ironic now because every day of my life in France, I speak with an accent. And I get it. I get why it's hard to learn another language. And so that's my, my parents and my three children. We just had a great time. And after we visited the house, we were able to walk through the village where she lived. I'm not real great at clicking this thing. There we go. And we found the church where she was christened baptized, which that's not really a good application of the word, but you know, that's the way it is. As a small baby, as a matter of fact, uh, recently on the internet, I found the documents. That's how I discovered her name wasn't what I always thought it was. And she was christened, baptized in a Lutheran church. And that kind of got me thinking, why? Why in Denmark did she attend a Lutheran church and not a Catholic church? And I'm going to tell you why, and it goes to the heart of this idea, the greatest need in missions. There once was a man named, and I, oh, well, so there, in Denmark, this is, sorry, I've mixed up my slides here. 
the man named Harold Bluetooth Gorsum. And yes, the guy had a Bluetooth. He was a dentist delight. He had a tooth that went rotten and it went blue. And he was the king of Denmark and then became the king of Norway because he unified these two Scandinavian countries. And yes, there was, once was a Swedish man about 20 or 30 years ago who invented a gadget to link all our devices together and thought, who unified before me? It's Bluetooth. And when you see the Bluetooth symbol, it's the initials of his name, Harold Gorsum, in a sort of a Scandinavian country. But I'm not here to talk about that, obviously. But Bluetooth was a real guy. And in about 900, Harold Gorsum got baptized. Now, a lot of people got baptized. Constantine in 313 or 350, somewhere in there, he was baptized. I don't think I'm going to see Constantine in heaven. And I don't know if I'll see Harold in heaven, but there's a fascinating thing. There's a very small town in the country of Denmark that has two stones. On the smallest stone, Harold's father wrote, he kind of engraved into that rock, the history of Denmark during his kingdom, during his reign. In the second rock, Harold, as often sons will do, dad did something, I'll do better because, you know, that's kind of what a son's dream. My dad is six, six foot. I'm six foot and two inches, you know. Or no, no, two centimeters, you know, whatever. But, so Harold's like, I'm going to be a little better than my father. So he wrote his story of what he did, how he unified the kingdom. But on the backside of that rock, there is a fascinating engraving. It's the cross of Jesus Christ without Christ on the cross. Because Harold was no Catholic. Now... He kind of was was a Catholic in the sense that he was born before Martin Luther, before John Calvin, but he did not follow very distinct Catholic thoughts and doctrines. It's an empty cross. So, did Harold believe that Jesus' cross was empty and Christ was the king of his life? Maybe. But what Harold did was he made a declaration, we are no longer a pagan country, we are a Christian country, and whatever that meant in 900... Harold profoundly changed the country of Denmark. However, the following kings after him became very Catholic, very Rome-centered, very faithful to the Pope, until the early 1500s, there's another king that comes, Christian II. Christian II is born at the very moment that Martin Luther starts to proclaim the Reformation, starts to put up his 95 theses. When the five solas came into being, Christian was the king of Denmark, and he was an arch-Catholic. He hated the Protestants. He despised this entire Reformation movement, and the good thing for us is he was also a rotten king. He was a jerk, and so he's deposed. The man who comes in after him was Frederick I. Now, Frederick I was on the bubble. He was tired of the Catholic Church and the manipulation and the asking for money all the time. He was intrigued by the Protestants. And so he allowed a certain amount of freedom. And because of that freedom, there was a former uh, Danish priest by the name of Hans Tosen. And Hans Tosen also started reading these works of Luther. And so Hans Tosen decided to actually just move to Wittenberg. He spent one year under the influence and the teaching of Martin Luther. He became an unbelievable faithful follower of Jesus Christ. So he takes the word of God. He goes back to Denmark and he starts to preach In all the Catholic churches, he preaches in all the villages, and people start start following Christ. They become saved by the thousands. 
The tens of thousands and the hundreds of thousands. The whole country of Denmark is starting to turn to Jesus Christ. At that very same time, Frederick I, the king who was kind of on the bubble, he's followed by his son, Christian III, who declares Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, declares the kingdom of Denmark a Christian, Protestant, Lutheran country, and that's why my grandmother was baptized in a Lutheran church and not a Catholic church. Now, you, come up, you, you move forward to time, and there was a moment in, where I, when my kid's there, and so th- that's why I took this photo, is that this is the very church where my grandmother heard the gospel, heard the facts of Jesus Christ, and, and I'm not sure at what point Protestant liberalism moved into all this, but this was an influence of the whole country. There was a time when you were born in Denmark, you were a Protestant, you were a Lutheran. Now, they didn't all follow Jesus. That's a fact. But my great-grandmother got on a ship, and in the early part of the 1900s, there was a moment in her life when she passed right before the Statue of Liberty. She originally went to Albert Lee, Minnesota, and I'm looking to my father to see if he's like, what are you, what are you, what are you lost your mind? No, it was Albert Lee, Minnesota, so my memory works a little bit. And eventually, she moves near a farm near Ayrshire, Iowa. Now, if you've heard of Ayrshire, Iowa, raise your hand. Yep, there's about four of us. That's about right, because that's probably the population. No, no, there's at least 40 people. I, two weeks ago, I drove through there. What a joy. You count down, five, four, three, two, one. We've gone through the whole town. And uh, just one of those beautiful Iowa farm towns. And in that town, there were two churches. Now, there's the Lutheran church that is mentioned there. But there was also a Baptist church. And there's a reason there was a Baptist church. And I'm going to show you a photo of John Firth. Now, let's just be honest. Our dear old brother John isn't looking so great there because he was at the end of his life. But there was a point in time, and I've not yet found this photo, when John Firth was a thriving, uh, strong, energetic Iowa farm boy. And he got saved. He got baptized. He was trained in the Word, and he decided to walk up to northwest Iowa near Emmitsburg. He actually walked two hours in the snow to preach his first message. And you know, sometimes in France, my internet's slow. And we all have suffering. No, I'm sorry. It's like... No, I mean, this guy, humi- he, this guy humiliates me. He walked two hours in the snow to preach a message. And I'm like, oh, church is at 9.30? Oh, man. But anyway, we all have our issues, don't we? And John Firth started a Baptist church in Ayrshire, Iowa. And one day, my dad went to that church as a young teenager, and he found Jesus. And that's the same Jesus that my parents introduced me to. And so I'm literally telling you, there is a historical line from Harold Bluetooth Gorsum to me. I can trace it. Now, it's a little bit of a winding path, and there's not a generation after generation direct line. I'm not the... You know, I'm, I'm not the 15th grandson of uh, Harold Bluetooth Gorsum, uh, but there's a direct line because there's a passage of Scripture that proves this. 
Now we're going to get into this. This is the context. We're going to deal with Romans chapter 10. And I'm going to show you how I believe Romans 10 goes right to the very heart of why I stand here before you this morning as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now in the context, it says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And the word zeal is very important. It literally can be translated into the idea to boil. And it gives an image of something bubbling up constantly. So you have Jewish individuals, actually fervent Jewish individuals who are not yet followers of Christ. But they're, uh, Paul says he can witness. I can tell you this. And actually, I think Paul could tell you this because he was one of them. At one point, Paul's saying, I bubbled up, I was boiling, I was constantly on fire for God. Whatever that means, in whatever manner, that's what Paul was doing. But there's a little clause there that changes everything, but not according to knowledge. Meaning, I did a lot, and I did it the wrong way. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. That's the context, the entire concept we're going to see in Romans chapter 10. But what Paul's saying is this. I gave a lot of money to the church. I was part of the the musicians. I I worked in the music of the church. I was in Awana. I worked in VBS. I went to IRBC every summer. I was a committed believer. I went on a missions trip once. Because the way I look at it is God did his part, and then I just started adding to that. And you know, eventually, hand in hand, me and God, we're going to be good. We're going to get together. And so in heaven, God can say, good job, buddy. I started it, but oh, you finished it so well. You added and you added, and finally, together, we made it. And Paul calls that ignorance. It's literally stupidity. And so in the context of Romans 10, Paul's going to explain to us the true story, the true way to have God's righteousness. He's going to talk about something that, first of all, we simply call a propositional truth. Now, um, one of the problems I had in preparing these messages is that I just don't do outlines anymore. Um, I have a very multicultural church, and so I tell a lot of stories because uh, it really works from people from other areas of the planet. And so Pastor Phil wrote me, uh, send me all the outlines of your messages. And then I just started to sweat profusely. And like, I wrote him back, what are you speaking of? What are these outlines? And then if he would have said, please alliterate, I just would have passed out because... <laughs> So a propositional truth is a true truth because that's what the dictionary told me. But what what does that mean? What is this propositional truth? It's very simple. So I skipped a few verses to get down to this propositional truth, but Paul tells us, because if you confess with your mouth, which is literally to say the same thing that someone else is saying, so we're going to say what God has given us is truth. If you profess, confess, say the same thing as God with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the Lord is a fascinating word. There was a Bible that existed at the time of Christ. It's called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so what's fascinating is we can take words from that translation and compare them to the New Testament. When the Old Testament speaks of Jehovah or Yahweh, guess what word is used? That one. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Jehovah, not a good prophet, not a nice man, God. If you say that Jesus Christ is God and then you believe or have a true firm conviction in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved from your sins Even though it doesn't say it in that passage, we know from multiple other verses that the salvation is the salvation we receive because of all the incredible evil things we have done, all the sins we've committed, and our very nature which condemns us to hell. So you confess with your mouth, you believe with your heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the the mouth one confesses and is saved. And my guess is none of you are sitting there saying to yourself, Oh, this guy is good. He's saying things I've never heard before. Because we've all heard this. This is simple, basic Christianity. We know these things. These are true truths. And so Paul says that, but then he goes on further to, ensure, to, to show us the, not just the importance of the matter, but what we are to actually do with this truth. And so we get the truth and we're to apply it. So that... Everyone or anyone who calls on the name which makes a reference back to both confessing and believing. If you do this, it's, a, it's repeating the same thing, but what happens? The Lord will save you. So that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It's what happened to myself. It's what happened to my dad. It's what happened in the church that John first started. It's what happened in this long line of individuals that I can trace all the way back to Harold Gorsum, the king of Denmark. Generation after generation after generation, in one way or another, because of the influence of the Reformation, because of the influence of Scripture, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, individuals were saved. It's When I said the importance of a godly heritage, I really mean that. Um, People are being saved today that had never heard the gospel until that very moment. That happens all the time. But let me ask you something real quickly. How many of you are the very first person to ever been saved in your family? One, two, five, six, seven, eight, maybe nine. It's, it, it's stunning and it's not stunning at all. Uh, if, if half of you would have raised your hand, I would have been really shocked. Godly heritage means something. It's just, we can see this, and I'm going to show you why. So then, after you see this in verse 13, you have four rhetorical questions concerning the gospel proposition. And can you tell that I went crazy with my thesaurus before I came to America? I'm like, you know, I have to, I have to sound like I know what I'm saying. So, yeah, so anybody afterward, if you can help me understand what rhetorical means... No, I'm kidding. I, I had, I, you know, I was an Esterville High School grad, so we speak English really good. <laughs> Londa's my sister. I think that's been established, but we have our own special Estervillian language. So uh, we was there. Nest- yeah, uh, anyway, it's just a family joke. Let it go. But uh, so they're rhetorical because we really don't have to answer them because the answer is always, well, yeah, duh. Uh, it's kind of evident. So, and he, and he, Paul, and he poses these questions in kind of a reverse order. So we have the truth and we can apply the truth. Now what are you going to do with the truth? 
well, how in the world can they call on someone who they do not believe? And you just say, well, yeah, that's it. That's really evident. If I don't know Jesus exists, how can I believe on Jesus? And how am I to believe, on, and how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? Another really simple rhetorical question. Well, yeah, I never said Jesus, so I can't really believe in Jesus. And how are they to hear without someone who proclaims? And that's kind of important because that's not about the preacher. This is not just for people that are uh, titled in a ministry. This is for everyone. The word goes right to the heart of proclamation. How will they hear about Jesus who they do not have someone proclaiming it? And how will you be able to proclaim unless someone is sent? So it's a very common, uh, simple way of presenting the fact that, yes, someone has to leave from point A to point B. Someone has to proclaim the message. Jesus has to be cited, explained, proclaimed, and then the person can make the decision, yes, I confess, I believe, and now I'm saved. Simple. Except for one issue. Which will eventually come. It's the, it's the idea that I presented from Harold to that church. It's the simple idea. Oh, can you make that go back? Because I don't want to mess up. There you, uh, one forward. What is the greatest need in missions today? And it goes right to the heart of hearing the word. Now, there are more or less 7.8 billion people on the planet. I verified that a month ago. Seems to be correct. Yeah, I verified that. Click, click, click. And that's what the internet told me. So I accept. I believe everything the internet says. I'm from France. Yeah. I knew that would go over really, really well because I can actually watch the one network on my computer in France. And so it's been an interesting time for y'all. For you I just, uh, just let you know. Maybe you were asleep during the last four years. Of that, there are 17,400 ethnic groups. This is probably the number one change shift in thinking in uh, mission, the missions realm is when I left 27 years ago to France... I was 10 years old, of course, but uh, I went to France to work with the French, and I discovered not everybody was French in France. I discovered ethnic groups, and so there started to be this shift where more and more people talk about actually going to a specific country. That's not, not a problem, and that still exists, but within that country, you might be able to reach uh, uh, you know, 1.5 million of people that are not native born to that country but are actually of another ethnic group and yet speak the same language as you. So ethnic groups has become a big deal. And I want to explain that because that's something that we're going to kind of uh, use in the following messages during the week. And so an ethnic group is a grouping of people who identify with each other on the basis of shared attributes that distinguish them from other groups such as a common set of traditions ancestry, language, history, society, culture, nation, religion within their residing area. And uh, I'm at best 50% Danish from my dad's side. We found out, and I think you know this, Dad, but there might have been a tiny bit of Portuguese that snuck into that line, and oh, that's just terrible. But Unless you're Portuguese, and that's wonderful. And I love your country and your language and your people. But... <laughs> 
I like to self-identify as a Danish American. Oh, that's a terrible thing to say. Wait a second. You know, I used to be able to say self-identify, and then that kind of means other things in America. It's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, again, I'm not from here. But uh, yeah, this whole concept of self-identifying is really weird. Um, I don't even know how to say that. Uh, I'm Danish American, so there you have that. Which means nothing except I know how to say Minnesota and, uh, and a ton of other things. And uh, I know what Lefse is, and I won't describe any more of that, you know. But I have the, I, I know these things. In the fact that I remember a grandparent who spoke, a great-grandparent who spoke with an accent. And uh, I just have just little hits there and here and wherever of Danishness and what that means. Now, I'm not ethnically Danish, but I know what that would mean and that would be able to live in. And uh, my wife and I and our daughter, we drove across America just kind of to explore the first five days we were here in the United States. And so we were somewhere in Ohio and we were at a Mexican restaurant and I turned to this, the, the, the waitress and I said, so are you Mexican? And she goes, I am El Salvadorian. Man, I'm sorry, because it meant something to her. And that's ethnicity. And so there are 17,300 and some ethnic groups in the world. Now, why in the world they take all this time to talk about 7.8 billion, about all these ethnic groups? It's for the following statistics, which are mind-numbing, heartbreaking, and I don't actually fully know what to do with them. But of the entire planet, there are 3.24 billion, so it's 41.7% of the planet, or 7,439 ethnic groups who don't understand or even know, it's, it varies, the following word, Jesus. I want you to think about that. 40% of our planet wakes up every morning. Some of them don't eat breakfast because they don't have enough food. Some do. Some of them drink water and some don't because they have none. And they, some of them change their clothes from their pajamas and some don't. Some get up and work. Some don't have jobs. But they live. They communicate. They fellowship with their fellow ethnic group members. And they eat lunch and they eat supper and they go to sleep. And if I came up to him and I said, hello, my name is Mark. I would like to talk to you of Jesus. They would just say, what? I don't, I don't know that word. I want you to think about that. 40% of the individuals living, breathing, existing on our planet today don't know the name Jesus. Um, I, I've thought a lot about that to prepare this message and then I would just... I would leave, I would just put it out of my mind. I can't take it. I mean, I mean literally, I, I'm so bothered by that, I don't know what to do. Except, I've got a few ideas I'm going to give you, but just, I'm talking about emotionally. I mean, I know what I can do, but I'm not sure how I handle that. That there are individuals that their 10-10 in the morning is 10-10 at night. They're literally on the other side of the planet. And they don't pray to Jesus, they don't think of Jesus, they don't live for Jesus, they don't know Jesus. All the time. And I'm going to show you what their life is about. We call these people the unreached. 
It's an entire group that has become very important to missions. I will eventually, literally, figure how to work this, but not today. The unreached people have three major aspects in their life. In their lives, they have no Bible in their language. They have no church in their region. They have no access to the gospel. So, just a couple things here: no Bible in their language. There's 3,945 language groups with no scripture, which makes 255 million people. Now, I've been dealing with billions, so that's significantly less, but that's still, it's, a, it's two-thirds of the entire United States that don't have this in any language they can understand, meaning they can't go to John 3.16, they can't go to Genesis 1.1, they have nothing they have no scripture of any sort in their language. And yet 1.5 billion people speaking 6,656 languages do not have a full Bible in their first language. Now, it's slightly better, but I have become obsessed with the concept of the mother tongue and what we call heart language. I have spoken to people in French who didn't get it and as soon as someone spoke their heart language, their mother tongue, they got it. And I'm thinking, you literally understood every word I said because we were communicating and Jesus just meant nothing. And suddenly when they heard this language, their own language, the message of Jesus, they burst into tears. They didn't become Christians bursting into tears. It was just like, for the first time in my life, I heard Jesus in my own language. I'm just going to give you an example real quickly. There's a website I'm going to get into. I'm going to show you on Wednesday. And I use this in a class I teach in a Bible college in France. And there was a Christian. He was 75 years old. He had, he had immigrated from Vietnam to France, joined the French military. I mean, this guy became Mr. French. He mastered the French language. And we're sitting in this class. And he came from a specific tribe that had been divided into two parts, the south and the north. And the south had their own language. And I said, have you ever heard the Bible in your own language? He goes, no, I don't even think it exists. Click, click, click. I said, pal, he's a 75-year-old man. I mean, he's my elder in this class. I said, listen. And he got down on, on his chair and he curled up and he started weeping like a child. He'd never heard the scriptures in his own language. And he cried and he cried and he cried and he finally composed himself. He goes, thank you. He goes, you'll never know what that meant to me. I heard Jesus in the language that my mother spoke to me. It, this stuff means something. These ethnic groups, these uh, individuals that live together, that share all these things in common, it means so much. And yet, 1.5 billion people do not have the entire scripture in their own language. The second thing, no church in their region. Uh, I do not want to over-exaggerate what I'm showing here. This was taken from, I think, Open Doors. I'm not 100%. I forget now. There's variations in the color because there are churches in India. There are churches in Algeria. What this map shows you is where churches do not have legal permission. So there's churches in China. There's a whole bunch of churches. But these are places where they cannot put up a sign. They cannot publish. They cannot broadcast that they exist. Look at that. And guess where the largest percentage of the world's population live? Right there. And guess where the largest percentage of people who have never heard the word Jesus live? Right there. 
Every one of those countries represents an area where going to church can cost you prison time, financial fines, or your life. And that's where one-fourth of all the people, or I'm sorry, where 40% of all the people who've never heard the word Jesus or don't understand the concept of the true biblical Jesus, they live right there. This last statistic is, I don't know, so bothersome. 80%, 86% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists in the entire world do not have a single Christian friend from their own culture, meaning that they don't know one single Christian who speaks their language, eats their food, has their traditions, and wears the same clothes. 86% wake up every morning saying, he's a Muslim, he's a Hindu, he's a Buddhist, and that's all I know. Just literally think of that. It's, it's beyond comprehension in the fact that our God is so great and Jesus Christ is so precious. And yet, how many days of my life do I wake up and I don't even think about those people? I don't even give a rip. My problem is, is that I stumbled upon this about 10, 12 years ago and I'm a missionary and I didn't even know. I didn't even have a concept that 40% of the entire planet doesn't even know the word Jesus. And in the country of France, I don't know, we have like 20 different translations of the Bible. I can listen to multiple Christian radio stations on the internet. And France is pretty limited. You have the opportunity to listen to certain varieties of Christian music on your station. You know, today I feel very conservative. I'll go to uh, 88 point, I don't know what. You know, today I just feel like moving a little bit for Jesus. That's the extent of my movement. Um, so I'm going to go to the higher channel that's, you know, whatever. And then I'm just going to get satellite radio because I'm just going to listen to Jesus all the time. And that's just the music. You know, you can buy Bibles at Walmart. Yeah, of course you know you can buy Bibles at Walmart. And you've never heard of this store, but it's called Carrefour. And 12 years ago, they did their 40th anniversary, and they put, literally, they put this in a little ad. They said, Walmart's number one, but we're number two, and we're trying hard. Go France. But uh, just think about that for a minute. Just think about that. We're number two? Huh? Huh? How many times have you bragged about being number two? I'm not sure, but uh, anyway, I can go into my stinking French Walmart and buy a Bible. In France, it cost me a buck fifty. Forty percent of our planet can't go into a store and buy a Bible, can't turn to a radio station to hear Jesus. They don't even have a friend who would just say, Hey, I'm a Christian. It could cost me a little bit. Here, here's Jesus. So The greatest need, 3.2 billion don't know Jesus. And what are we going to do? So what do I do? How do I go all in for Christ concerning the greatest need in missions today? And before I give you the answer, and I'm going to end with this answer, I could stand up here and I could just try to guilt you into money or service 
or all sorts of action. And I'm not going to do that at all. This is not about guilt at all. It's very possible that this is the first time you've even been exposed to this. It's okay. It's not something that we talk about all the time. It's not something that's exposed in every Christian magazine and every Christian message you hear about. And it probably shouldn't be the single drumbeat. Matter of fact, it shouldn't be the single drumbeat that comes out of preaching or teaching. But it's a real deal. But I'm going to show you what I think you can do and in the theme of the week to go all in for Jesus. And it's not going to cost you a lot except you're going to have to remember and the single thing that I want you to do is to simply pray. And I'm not joking about this. What I mean is this, is that at the end of this time we're together or for lunch or tomorrow when you have, or not tomorrow, but this afternoon when you have a little downtime, tonight before you go to sleep, honestly, take a minute because it'll be one more minute than you had done before, probably. Now, there might be a few of you who are like, Man, uh, thank you. I've been doing this for years, and this is something really important. My guess is, is that most of us had not been exposed a tremendous amount to the extent of the need. And we need to start to pray. We need to pray daily that God would raise the funds, the individuals, the means, and the methods to reach 40% of our planet to simply, and I'm not talking about even salvation, to simply say, to our fellow human beings, Jesus. Jesus exists. Jesus is alive. Jesus is raised from the dead. And Jesus is here to save you from, my, from, from your sins, my friend. My friend who has never heard this message before in your life. We need to pray like never before. We need to bring this before God all the time. And here's the one thing I'm going to say and I'm going to finish. A lot of you are under 30 years old aren't you? I mean, there's quite a few of you who are probably in your 20s. Ah, I remember the 20s. 1920s. Remember, Tim? <laughs> Going to school at faith with a horse and buggy. And... So for all you youngsters that Tim and I look and say, man, we love you, but not totally. You're too spry. But anyway, um, you have opportunities that none of us older individuals ever had. You have opportunities to get involved with businesses and companies that will send you to these places. You will be appreciated and you can speak Jesus so easily. It's ridiculous. But we're all not 20 and some of you are 29 and a half and holding and holding. And some of you are retired and some of you will retire and there are places in the world where these individuals exist. They live, and they have some of the most beautiful white sand beaches and the most beautiful resorts you can ever find. I'm not saying as a French missionary I ever went to these places, but we did go to Mallorca, my daughter, my, uh, Mallorca, oh, suffering for Jesus. That's the most important thing. But what will you do in your retirement years? You can go to the Wisconsin Dells. It's fine. Or go to a white sandy beach where all the surf staff is Muslims and just take a couple tracks and talk about Jesus. But see, I don't think we'll do any of that if we haven't already been praying. And I, I think if we don't pray about it, it's just going to leave our minds. So I'm going to close in prayer. 
But what I'm asking you is from now until the next time, the next message tomorrow morning, please pray. Just take a minute. Take five minutes and just pray. Pray that God would help you to get a better grasp on this. Pray for 40% 40 of our planet. Pray for those who are already missionaries trying to reach out to these people. But just pray. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel message that saved us. And God, I thank you for the gospel heritage that has formed this camp, that has touched so many lives sitting here this morning. And so, Father, I just pray now that as our minds are turned to the billions who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, Father, I just pray that you would you would stir something in our hearts that we have not known before. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would impress upon our minds the importance of praying for these individuals who do not know the name of your Son, who live in total ignorance. Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his desire and, and his exposing of the ignorance of the, of the Jewish people of his time. And Father, I continue that we would be inspired by your word to think about, to pray, and then to act for these individuals who do not know you. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for each individual who took the time out of their week and out of their life to come to this camp. I pray that you would transform them. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would stir with them this desire to reach the unreached. And so, Father, again, we thank you for saving us, for loving us, and for being everything to us. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.